This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Thursday, February 11th, 2021. I'm Caleb Brown. U.S. Marshals are supposed to go after the worst of the worst, but a new Marshall Project investigation indicates that in cases where deadly force is used, that's often not the case. Further, the Marshals, like other federal law enforcement agencies, regularly deputizes local law enforcement and in doing so, removes them from the reach of local accountability. Simone Weichelbaum with the Marshall Project is co-author of that investigation. Patrick Giacomo, an attorney with the Institute for Justice, is currently working on cases that challenge the ways that deputized feds avoid local accountability. We spoke yesterday. So the U.S. Marshals are a branch of the Justice Department. And when you think of them, sometimes you think about, oh, they guard federal courthouses, Oh, they go after the worst of the worst, the El Chapos of the world, the Calp killers. The Richard Kimballs of the world. Yeah. So when you think of them, you think, wow, these guys are like the creme de la creme of law enforcement, and they go after the worst people in this country. Wrong. So I always say when I get tips from police chiefs, something must be up. So for years, police chiefs in various cities have been complaining to me, A, about working on federal task forces, which Patrick can talk about later. But when it came down to it, like, what is the big problem with federal task forces? The chief of their complaints, these chiefs, pun intended there, were the U.S. Marshals. And the way these things work, the U.S. Marshals embed themselves with local police departments to help catch suspects. But when we started digging into this, this is not the worst of the worst suspects. About two-thirds of their arrests are actually local suspects. And so we were curious. And, of course, I put in a FOIA, your listeners. Cato folks are smart. They know what a FOIA is. I don't even have to explain that. And of course, DOJ said no. I expected them to say no. So we hand-built a database. Took us nearly two years to do this. Using news clips, police reports, and court cases. And we compiled nearly 200 shootings. 177 shootings, to be exact. Over nearly six years. And then analyzed all that information. And what we found was very disturbing. The first thing we found is about in half of those shootings... People were wanted on crimes that we say resulted in minimal injury, a lot of drug warrants, a lot of people, several people running away from halfway houses. And yes, you had the murderers and the rapists, a lot of child molesters, which I can talk about why the marshals have that caveat or that sort of world. They focus actually a lot on sex crimes. But um, I was really surprised to see um, how this all played out. And it really went against the myth that I thought that these guys were going after America's most wanted. Patrick, what do local law enforcement agencies get out of bringing in uh, U.S. Marshals and other federal law enforcement agencies? Yeah, so they get a lot of things out of it. And the main thing they get is sort of this entire group, this basket of things that being a federal officer provides that being a state officer doesn't. Um, And so from a practical standpoint, they get things like access to new technology and overtime pay and more money and things like that. Um, But from a legal perspective, they get all sorts of uh, end arounds, restrictions that they would have if they were state officers and special protections that federal officers have that state officers don't have. So just for example, um, there could be all sorts of state law restrictions on things like forfeiting uh, and keeping money that's taken um, during uh, an investigation or requirements that officers wear body cameras or specific restrictions on the use of force. Um, All those things that state law might impose on them, 
becoming a task force officer working with a federal agent via U.S. Marshals or FBI or something like that allows them to get around those things. So if their state says they can't forfeit, well, the feds say they can't forfeit and now they're a federal officer. If their state says they have to wear a body cam, well, if they're on the federal task force, oftentimes they can say, I don't need to wear a body cam. I don't need to wear a uniform. I'm not restricted in the way that I can access cell phone data, things like that. Uh, Simone, in your story here, um, that you uh, co-authored, you talk about Michael Pizzelli, Pizzelli. Michael Pizzelli, Pizzelli, uh, who shot and killed a teenage girl, among others that he shot and killed when he fired into a car that she was riding in. He faced no consequences. Uh, so if you wouldn't mind, walk us through the events of that story. Sure. So Michael Pozzelli is the reason why he's our narrative thread in this project. Um, I ran across, across him in the database. He's a task was a task force officer. So a task force officer or local cops, like what Patrick was talking about, they join a U.S. Marshals task force and then they're deputized with federal powers. So not only do they receive things like overtime and special protections, it's also a legal change. So once Michael Pozzelli, um works for the U.S. Marshals, he follows sort of a different set of protocol. So our reporting found that the U.S. Marshals follow a different standard when it comes to lethal force. So it's something called imminent danger. So uh, if an agent articulates, I feel under threat, I feel that I'm in imminent danger, you know, that's why I pulled out my gun. But you could argue me sitting here at my desk, you know, the ceiling could fall on my head, so I could be in imminent danger right now. And the second thing, too, shooting at cars. Not only in the death of Soraya Lane, the teenager who he shot and killed, we found several shootings on his record where he literally, in some cases, are shooting from a police vehicle, an unmarked police vehicle, through the windshield and shooting at the person he's going after and hitting that person's car and them. So we found in about 25% of our 177 shootings that we analyzed, U.S. Marshals and their task force officers are shooting at cars, a practice that in local policing has more or less been banned, has been criticized by DOJ for local cops even doing that. And the U.S. Marshals on record said, we had a 90-minute interview, and they said, yeah, we do it when people use cars as a weapon. But what we also found about the U.S. Marshals is they're not really in the business of search warrants. And a search warrant is, you know, if you want to kick down a door, and as we saw with the debate over the summer of how police enter your homes, like we saw what happened in Louisville, like, is that even the right thing to do? But on the other end of that spectrum, you have the U.S. Marshals and their task forces not going into your home, liking to wait until you're walking down the street, surveilling you, watching you. And when you're about to get in your car, they box you in with unmarked police vehicles. And this happens in many of the cases, including the case that killed Soraya Lane. And then you're trapped. You can't move. So then they argue, well, that person tried to move their vehicle, even if you're moving at a couple of feet. So we open fire. We, we lift them up. And we see in several cases, including in the death of Soraya Lane, they literally just spray the car with bullets, killing people. And in this case, with Michael Pizzelli and Soraya Lane, he was after someone um, who was accused of um, assaulting his girlfriend, stealing her gun. This is in um, Arizona. It's a very convoluted story why he was after this person, Brandon Bacchino. But we got the police reports. Michael Pizzelli says, yeah, I saw them with this young girl. They didn't call off sort of the outdoor raid, if you will, and open fire on this vehicle and kill this girl. And he's cleared. He is now collecting a pension uh, supported by taxpayer dollars in Arizona. But even more interesting, he now works as a, a police training officer, traveling the country, teaching cops how to make those arrests. 
one of the elements of this uh, sort of strange mismatch when you have local law enforcement effectively deputized as federal agents, uh, it seems that even if you accept the notion uh, that the rules of engagement for specific police agencies like U.S. Marshals might be appropriate in some circumstance, it, it sort of follows the assumption that these people are specifically being uh, used to target the worst of the worst, as you said earlier, Simone. Is that fair? Yeah. it's. I think um, as we started digging into the story, I was surprised by what people were wanted for. Or even if they ran away from a halfway house, well, it landed them in prison in the first place. A lot of it was meth, heroin use. Another interesting thing, this is not a big city problem. We had one case in New York City. I don't think we had any in the Chicago proper area, one outside Chicago, none in Los Angeles. A like Arizona led our database, several in Utah, several in Montana. So we found actually that a third of our shootings happened in cities under 50,000 people, which is a lot. Patrick, what prevents local uh, prosecutors and local judges who may well be uh, outraged by the, the kinds of violence that uh, these particular uh, federal agents rain down on on communities what prevents the local prosecutors from saying i don't care who deputized you you will appear in this state court to answer for uh what you've done yeah the uh the united states supreme court's interpretation of the supremacy clause is what prevents these things and so uh, when you're dealing with um, these federal officers or task force officers working with federal officers who are treated like federal officers, uh, you see this. there's a dual accountability problem. And the first one that, uh, Caleb, you're asking about is that because of the supremacy clause and the way the courts have interpreted it, the state courts can't prosecute federal officials doing federal things. And so once a local police officer becomes a member of a federal task force, they do something as part of that task force, they can't be prosecuted under state law. Only the federal prosecutor can prosecute them. And there are special restrictions that prevent their prosecution completely, but even prevent um, the investigation of their actions under some circumstances. And at the same time, because they become federal officers, the ability for their victims to sue them in civil court is also restricted because um, the way that you can sue an officer depends on whether they work for the state or federal government. And if they work for the federal government, it's a lot more difficult. Talk to me about uh, – we, we've discussed this before, but talk to me about James King and, and uh, the problems that he faced dealing with deputized federal agents who were otherwise would have just been local cops. Yeah, so James King's situation actually involves a task force that involves the FBI instead of U.S. Marshals. But the MO is very similar to what Simone has been describing as a general problem, which is you have uh, some federal agent who's working with a number of local agents um, to create a task force. And th in this case, it was supposed to be a fugitive task force, which, like Simone suggested, um, was supposed to be going after the worst of the worst, the truly dangerous people who are going to flee interstate and are serious danger to society. But in reality, what the task force is doing, which is common, is that they were just doing local policing. And so in the case of James King, an FBI agent, a local Grand Rapids police detective who were part of a task force, were looking for someone who was wanted on a warrant related to having broken into his boss's apartment to steal a box of empty soda cans and liquor, um, which was a crime under state law. There was a state 
uh, warrant for this person's arrest. They were looking for the person in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Again, not a big city, a small city. Um, and instead, they found James. And like the U.S. Marshal Simone described, these guys are in plain clothes. They don't have a marked car. Nobody knows who they are, but they try to make this arrest. And uh, James thinks he's being mugged and ultimately gets the crap kicked out of him and charged with several felonies. Um, and we've been litigating a civil rights case against those officers all the way up to the U.S. Supreme Court, which heard the case in November. Um, but the M.O. is is identical to what Simone's describing. It's just that this is an FBI task force instead of a U.S. Marshal task force. Uh, Simone, an agency spokeswoman for the U.S. Marshals Service, says, given the nature of the criminals we pursue and the specificity of our mission, there is a higher chance for violence than experienced by the, quote, normal cop on the beat. The U.S. Marshals have one of the most dangerous jobs in law enforcement. How does that that claim jibe with uh, what you've discovered uh, about the shootings that the U.S. Marshals have engaged in? She have a point. They are on the front lines. They're not out there. They're not detectives. They're not investigating crimes, doing door knocks. They literally only are sort of dispatched to chase after you and arrest you. And, you know, to their point, if you're a fugitive of the law, you are actually a violent felon, maybe carrying a gun. However, they don't really use discretion. And I spoke to retired U.S. Marshals who had the same complaint that they're sort of this generation is putting themselves in harm's way. So if you are immediately pouncing on that person, if you are immediately um, surrounding that vehicle, you're not giving yourself space, you're not giving yourself distance to take a breath, to see what's going on, to see who else is in that car. And you're also putting um, fellow U.S. Marshals and task force officers at risk. So when we did crunch the data, we found that the U.S. Marshals on average shoot about 31 people a year. And when we compared um, the size of the U.S. Marshals plus their task force officers, more or less about 6,000 officers, and talked to Houston and Philadelphia, which is roughly under 6,000, we found those numbers are lower. Per, per average per year. Um, but we also found that the U.S. Marshals um, had about five people, officers or deputies, uh, shot and killed in that time span we examined. And those cities, I believe Houston had um, one officer shot and killed and Philadelphia had two. So what I'm trying to say is that not only are these shootings, these incidents, the way they apprehend people, putting the public at risk, they're actually putting their own officers at risk too. And U.S. Marshals, to be clear, uh, fairly small federal police agency, right? It's small, but when you add in the task force officers, and again, the numbers they would give me. So what's very interesting about the U.S. Marshals is not only do they have permanent um, task forces across the country, they have a rotating crop of pop-up forces. And some of these forces are days long, some go up to 90 days. And, and I found in Pensacola, Florida, this is not in the story, this is my last story about federal task forces, um, the police chief in Pensacola told me they deputized a third of the, his police force as U.S. Marshals to help um, capture people in Alabama and the northern Florida. So that's also a very interesting thing that they have about 6,000, but untold numbers of cops, you know, once a month, once every few weeks are also deputized with federal powers. I feel like the three of us have had at this discussion before. And so I'm going to end up uh, at a similar point where we did the last time we spoke. Um, what can state lawmakers do to stop this or rein it in? So state lawmakers are pretty much limited to preventing state officers from joining these task forces. And as, as Simone's reported on before, we, we have seen instances where uh, police chiefs have said, none of my officers are allowed to join your task force because it's doing bad things or it has bad policies in place that allow officers to do bad things. Um, 
Short of that, there's not much that can be done once officers have joined a task force and do things as part of the task force. So really the work needs to be done at the state or local level before the officers join the task force, because once they become a federal officer, everything else that attaches to that flows from federal court doctrines or the Constitution in such a way that there's nothing they can do to undo it after the fact. Yep. And the second that all they can do is withdraw. And, you know, since I started reporting on this topic, I'm really excited that um, IJ has gotten it to the Supreme Court. And I know from reporting on the story, you know, a lot of US, former U.S. attorneys, former U.S. marshal officials are um, hopefully going to bring this before the Biden administration. Senator Grassley has working on this issue a lot, um, investigating the U.S. Marshals. So what I found really interesting is you have, I wouldn't call it bipartisan, it's tripartisan a word, because we have libertarians, we have people on the left, people on the right. The U.S. Marshals are um, under the microscope, under a lot of people. I think the media, we really haven't paid attention to them, but you know, here we are writing this big project. So I'm hopeful that this is going to push the needle forward. So you would imagine that if you're a state lawmaker or a governor, or even an attorney general, that you would find it at least a little problematic that people who are within your jurisdiction become deputized as federal agents, and suddenly their behavior is no longer a matter for you to really have any say over. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, these men and women are still, at the end of the day, Um, working for their respective local agencies when they're on these task forces, even though they have um, this whole panoply of new protections and rights. And so they're still walking around, in in the case of James King, for example, with a badge that says Grand Rapids Police Department and a gun that's issued by the Grand Rapids Police Department. And they're usually being paid at least their normal salary through the local police department and things like this. And so in in the most basic sense, this is someone who's literally walking around with a gold piece of metal that says the name of the city they're supposedly representing. And now that they're also have signed a paper that says they're a special U.S. Marshal, they're out of the reach of any accountability that could be placed on them uh, by local prosecutors or local officials. Uh, what would an end to qualified immunity mean? Uh, it, it, you know, within a state, Patrick, in particular, within a state, if Michigan or Wisconsin or whatever state decided to say, hey, you may no longer claim uh, qualified immunity uh, under our state constitution. Does that mean anything for these agents? No, unfortunately. Well, that's that's the thing that's really shocking about the way task forces work is that once this once an officer becomes a, a federal agent of any type through usually some special deputization as a U.S. marshal, they're out of the reach of the state. It doesn't matter if the state passes uh, a new law that allows for the waiver of qualified immunity. None of that matters. The person goes into the federal system and is and is treated to all the special protections that a federal officer would get, regardless of whatever the limitations their state or municipal um, governments would place on them. So, uh, Simone, in some sense, this is a, a problem that only the Supreme Court or federal lawmakers can fix. Is that right? Right. It's something that Congress would fix or DOJ at the least could change its policy. But I wanted to make a point that in my reporting, a lot of police chiefs and local prosecutors don't even know what they're up against. Like when I speak to police chiefs who are like, I'm staying in the federal task force, and then I explain the law and how it plays out, you know, how the Constitution interprets the supremacy clause if something goes wrong. They're like, oh, really? Well, that's not what the MOU said. And I'm like, well, let me tell you how it's interpreted in the federal courts. On the flip side, when police chiefs are withdrawing, like the Tucson assistant chief um, is quoted in this piece. In my last piece about federal task forces, the Atlanta police chief led the way and spoke very openly about her frustrations with the U.S. Marshals. They don't know until it's too late. 
So in Atlanta's case, when there was a shooting that's involved an FBI task force, but the same rules apply, and they want to release the body camera footage to the public, they can't. Even now, they actually have changed the policy since that story came out, where a task force officer can wear a body camera. Um, the feds still get to dictate when that footage is released, even if it's a local cop wearing that body camera footage. If you want to have that cop um, speak to your shooting team, like just give a statement, the feds get to dictate that too. There's a wonky thing called a TUI regulation, which is another um, SCOTUS case law that says when and how a U.S. attorney gets to step in and sort of block a federal employee, whether a cop or a mailman, from giving a statement. So there's so many barriers that I think a lot of people in local law enforcement, whether police chiefs or district attorneys, really just don't understand. And it basically takes a constitutional law professor and expert. I've been talking to folks like Patrick and Christy Lopez at uh, Georgetown Law, to name some, um, who really taught me, literally had to walk me through how all this stuff works, because I wouldn't know either. And if you're a busy police chief, and I'm surprised actually local DAs don't know this, but you, it's, a, it's, a, it's a nerdy, wonky place in law. You have to know things about a Bivens claim, which Patrick can talk about. They have things like a TUI regulation, which I just brought up. But without understanding all this wonky case law stuff, you don't really understand how you're getting screwed, more or less. Simone Weichelbaum is a staff writer with The Marshall Project. Patrick Giacomo is an attorney at the Institute for Justice. Subscribe to the Cato Daily Podcast anywhere you please and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.